The problem with audacity is that it is too sensitive, so it picks up everything, uh -huh. which is great. Should unless we shut the door, because uh, then like people know, because people are gonna come in late, and then you know. Okay. All right. So uh, anyway, I'm gonna talk for about twenty minutes, and then. I'm gonna make you all talk for about 15 minutes and then you can ask me questions if you want. If you have some clarification questions, you can stop me during, but it kind of all fits together. So you might as well just let me get through the thing. Because uh, a lot of your questions will probably be answered by like the next slide or the slide after that, that sort of thing. All right, so that's the cover of my book. As you can see, I have them for sale after this. I guess you could buy it now, but why? Uh, and Honestly, I don't want to be boring about it, but some of what I'm doing is reading here because I guess I could just put the stuff on the slide, but it would just be me putting it on the slide, which is the same as here. So uh, that's what we're going to do. It'll be about 20 minutes where I'm basically going to explain the argument of the book and what I'm putting forth. And then I'm going to make you all think about it and talk about it. And then you can ask me questions or whatever. All right. So like I said, my name is Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. I got that doctor a few months ago, so that's pretty cool. Um, I got my doctor. I got my doctorate from Hunter College. I started my career in 2008, I would say, by doing what a lot of us do, which is jetting off to South Korea, despite not having any qualifications for it. Um, I was 21, didn't know what I was doing, but I was on my dad's couch and I was unemployed, so I left. Um, and then I didn't know what I was doing. And after a year, I realized I had some innate skill at connecting with students in the classroom. But I didn't know what I was doing, like as a teacher. Right? And so I said, well, I, I better figure it out. So I came back here and I went to school. I got my master's. Um, the funny thing is the program ended up being online. So I didn't even have to come back. I didn't know, I didn't know where I was gonna go until I got back. And uh, got my master's and I was working like many people in adult education. I worked as a manager of a department at a nonprofit for a while, four years. Before that I worked uh, at various adult education facilities in the city where they paid me like half a cent. Um, and, you know, it got to the point where I realized, like, why is this business and industry so unsustainable as a career? You know, I don't really understand. Like, I, other people that I've worked with will talk about, well, you know, I got five adjuncting jobs. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I've done adjuncting, but I don't want that to be what I, my, my stuff is based on. But what is the problem here, right? Uh, so I left, uh, not New York, but the field, sort of. I kept one foot in it. I started hanging out at Nice Tea Saw like this, but... I started working just in general curriculum development that wasn't specifically to language. But when I went back for my doctorate, the research just kept pointing me towards a lot of things. I started writing about, I started asking people questions about what they do in the classroom where it comes to race and racism, and people did not want to talk about it. Didn't want to talk about it. I said, that's interesting. So my research became like, why don't these people want to talk about it? Uh, as opposed to more general things. And then the more I learned and the more I was studying and the more I realized how all of the things I'm studying, including language, race, and disability, are they're all connected. So what this book is about, as you'll see shortly, is about the connection between these uh, axes of oppression and how that influences our industry, what we can do to change the industry. It's less of a classroom teaching tip thing because every other presentation here is a classroom teaching tip and you don't need more of those. Uh, there is some classroom stuff, but it's more about the industry because frankly, I, I'm happy if you change the way you teach, but if the industry doesn't change, it's not gonna matter that much. That doesn't mean don't change the way you teach, but anyway. So now I'm going to post this. It's not gonna tell you what's on there, it's just telling you what's on there. Are we, what? Yes. Yes.
All right, so book is called Anti-Social Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness. I did design that title. I didn't, they have these generic titles at the publisher, I mean, these generic covers at the publisher, and I was like, how about I make it? So they accepted my design, and that's what it looks like. Come on now. Uh, so this is, I'm not going to read the whole intro. Uh, I'm going to skip around, but that's basically what this is. Come on now. I wish they would give me a clicker. It's a quote from James Baldwin that also appears in the book. Please try to remember that what they believe, as well as what they do and cause you to endure, does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. So, here's that guy. On August 13, 2020, this guy delivered a signature rant on the supposed pandemic-related decline of American cities with Democratic leadership, referring to protesters as BLM and Antifa, crazed ideologues, grifters, criminals, and here we go, anti-social thugs with no stake in society and nothing better to do than hurt people and destroy things. Now, he's merely hinting at it instead of saying so, but Carlson's using coded language to describe people of color and particularly black people out acting outside of the standardized societal boundaries to which he and others adhere. There are several dog whistles in that statement. Obviously, it's easier to decry black people if you condense it into an acronym like BLM. Uh, but I want to focus on one pertinent descriptor, as you can probably guess by the title of the slide. When he says antisocial thugs with no stake in society, he and his writers, because he doesn't write this stuff, uh, are not espousing some fringe viewpoint, but instead emphasizing a core tenet of his popular ideology, namely the fact that decentralized resistance and opposition to the hegemony of whiteness is anathema to what he refers to as society and the common elision of blackness and criminality as expressed via his use of the word thug. I don't really go too deep into that. People have talked about that already, but you understand why thug is a um, dog whistle. As odious as ideas are to anyone who's listening to me, you're not coming to this if you're a big Tucker Carlson fan, uh, Carlson's not speaking out of turn when compared to the epistemology and the ideology of the whiteness that retains a firm grip on this globe, which I was supposed to press before I got to that point. But anyway, so let's talk about the DSM and diagnoses. Uh, according to the DSM-5, the fifth edition of the DSM, all right, the very first criterion for antisocial personality disorder is Failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Basically, if you get arrested a lot, it's a criteria, a criteria, I should say. Now, this officially codified in the book definition, all right, he's right, okay? To cause property damage and perturb police officers is, in fact, antisocial behavior. Now, you might be quick to point out that to diagnose a large group of individuals based on a short video clip is an unprofessional way to use these terms, and this is correct. Yet I would argue, in fact, that he is merely amplifying a set of values upon which global social hierarchy is built, values which must be exposed, confronted, and defeated if minoritized def identities are ever to find safety. In short, the concept of society Oh, I went too fast. All right. In short, the concept of society against which antisocial and other disordered behavior is measured is merely a mask for whiteness. And considering that the epistemology responsible for these diagnostic criteria is itself an exemplar of whiteness, it is difficult to trust whiteness as an objective, objective judge of what is and is not antisocial. Furthermore, we're considering the path whiteness has chosen in order to define and protect itself and its systemic property, I would argue that if anything at all has no stake in society, if that word can be redefined more broadly as equity, justice, and liberation for all humans, it is whiteness itself. So let me get into what all of that means. So 
Among the many groups whiteness has created and positioned in opposition to itself are those classified as black, the disabled, and those who do not conform to acceptable practices of languaging, particularly those who do not perform English or another colonial language, but we're English teachers, uh, in a way that satisfies the white listener or the white perceiving subject. And I'm sure you all know where I got those from. Those groups, those groups may seem to be separate, right? Black, disabled, and language learners, but they've all been constructed as lesser than whiteness through a robust and centuries old epistemology that rarely distinguishes between them. From the beginning of chattel slavery, does that start here? Yeah, okay. From the beginning of chattel slavery, the victims thereof were considered constitutionally disabled and childlike. And the same tropes can be found in descriptions of those who were colonized and forced to adopt their oppressor's language. The gradual proliferation of English language teaching has thus long functioned as a weapon in the arsenal of whiteness deployed to perpetuate its global hegemony so successfully that we now barely notice the faulty foundations upon which our field was built. Language, or a supposed lack thereof, is tied very closely to harmful theories of race and ability, and all three concepts are not neutral or objective, but in fact part of the same scheme to exploit certain people and enrich others. In an era when more of us claim to believe that Black Lives Matter, when we claim to want to decolonize our curricula, we as members of the ELT field cannot ignore the past through which all of these forms of oppression intersect. And if we attempt to reform our field in incremental ways without understanding the compounded impact of these issues, we are doomed to fail at supporting the students and colleagues about whom we profess to care. So let's talk about a couple of theories here. So despite what you may read in the news, CRT is not simply any attempt to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. In fact, the DI industry, as such as it is, might be called into question by many CRT scholars. CRT is a... I'm assuring you know this, but CRT is a framework derived from legal studies and analysis and expanded into many other fields, including education, and now it's a flashpoint for right-wing nonsense. In short, CRT elucidates the central role that racism plays in our society, okay, our meaning the United States, but truthfully, it applies just as well to many other contexts. Fighting the CRT backlash is not the purpose of this book, but I suspect what scares so many people is the fact that acknowledging the truth that CRT reveals would call unearned power into question, and that is understandably hard for people with that power to swallow. I really wish they gave me a clicker. There's a couple of other theoretical frameworks here, frameworks in the work, but another one that I want to bring up is DISCRIT, which is Disability Critical Race Studies or Critical Race Theory. It doesn't matter. Okay, uh, but what this is, and you probably are less familiar with this one, is uh, it's a relatively new addition to the literature. Came out in like 2013, so I understand why you may not have heard of it, and they're not yelling about it on Fox News. But it's a combination of disability studies in education and CRT. Okay, for those interested in pursuing this framework further, I'm going to very quickly define it. But basically, it focuses on ways that the forces of racism and ableism circulate interdependently, all right, often in neutralized and invisible ways. It values multi-dimensional multi identities and troubles singular notions of identity such as race or disability or class or gender or sexuality, etc. Right? It emphasizes the social constructions of race and ability and yet recognizes the material and psychological impacts of being labeled as raced or disabled, which sets one outside of the cultural norm. It's exactly what Tucker Carlson is talking about. It privileged discrete privileges, these words are hard to say very quickly, privileges voices of marginalized populations, traditionally not acknowledged within research. We all know who gets to write research and who is in the research. Okay, we consider the legal and historical aspects of disability and race and how each have been separately and together used to deny the rights of some citizens. It recognizes whiteness and ability as property and that people labeled with disabilities have largely been made as the result of interest convergence of white middle-class citizens. And it requires activism and supports all forms of resistance. 
this. We're going to talk about what we can do later. So explicitly considering multiple axes of oppression and how they interact upon and within an individual as a central, central, central tenet of disability justice. And disability cannot be divorced from the full understanding of whiteness that I hope you can bear with my work, even though the two have not always been analyzed collectively. In fact, this entire project grew out of me writing about whiteness and ability, and then the language stuff came in when I went further into the research. Kind of define a couple more terms for you and explain the way that I'm using them in the book. They may or may not be considered the dictionary definitions, but that's okay. Here's a fun word for everybody, right? And I'm dividing this for a reason. I know you understand, but some people don't seem to understand. So it's racial discrimination and societal oppression. Anyone can experience the former, all right? I could say, I don't want to have any white friends. Now, that's not true, but I could say it. Wouldn't really be quite the same thing. It's just mean, all right? Yes, part of racism is cruelty, but it's not just about interpersonal cruelty. Only certain groups can experience the two things combined. But everybody can make the choice to perpetuate racism or not including you and me. I've done it, right? We're going to talk about ways that you probably have done it a little bit later, and we'll talk about ways to not do that. So many forms of racism. There's anti-Black racism. There's anti-Asian racism, anti-Muslim racism. I'm well aware that Muslim is, or Islam isn't a race, but the way that the language is used, Muslim scholars will tell you that it counts, all right? And don't say race when you mean racism. They, they're very bad at this in the media. When you hear that someone was killed because of their race, no, they weren't. They were killed because of racism. No one's race has ever affected them. It's racism. All right, then there's anti-blackness, which is the same as anti-black racism. I'm building up to a point, obviously. Um, you could call it anti-blackness, you can call it anti-black racism. It depends on how many syllables you want to use, basically, but it's the same thing. Uh, it's oppression of blackness, black people, black languages, black bodies. Not just black languages, as in languages spoken by black people, but the way that black people use certain languages also, okay? It's one of the most, most historically reliable paths towards whiteness. Think about the 19th century when Irish and Italian immigrants becoming police, including my great-great-grandfather. Uh, other European immigrant homeowners helping to exclude black families from suburbs when the suburbs blew up and the Great Migration and we were all moving places and a lot of people said, nah, I don't like that. And you had the choice to either help people integrate or keep them out. And a lot of people decided, I'm going to go over there and keep them out. Uh, and then there's white supremacy. I don't think I need to define this one to you. I'm contrasting it with white nationalism, right? You want to build a wall. That's not really white supremacy. That's trying to build a country for white people. That's white nationalism. Whenever you hear white supremacists to describe a Steve Bannon or a Steve Miller, that's not actually strong enough of a word. Okay, the same thing with leaving the European Union for no good reason because they're afraid of immigrants and now their economy fell apart because they're not very smart. Anyway, but I want to bring up whiteness. Why? Because the main point I'm trying to make here is that the concept of whiteness, the way we understand it today, which is from around the 16th century, although it's not like there's one day and they're like, ah, oh, whiteness, uh, was created to be supreme. Okay, there's no functional difference between the concepts, not people with light colored skin. Okay, not like Scandinavians or wherever you think of the whitest people, right? The functional difference between whiteness and white supremacy is nothing. The concept of whiteness was created to be supreme and to be mostly, although not entirely, because someone's going to come up with the devil's advocate point, to be excluded from slavery, colonialism, etc. Obviously, there were originally white slaves before someone brings that up, but very quickly, once the concept was defined and codified and the edges around the concept were built, well, slave didn't mean white anymore, at least in this country. So let's talk about colonialism, though, because you got to talk about colonialism if you're going to talk about English teaching. So one of the primary drivers behind the global dominance of whiteness has been colonialism, in particular the settler colonialism visited upon the indigenous uh, and the enslaved peoples of what was eventually called the United States. 
As Dunbar Ortiz explained, this system represented the founding of a state based on the ideology of white supremacy, the widespread practice of African slavery, and a policy of genocide and land theft. Understand, we're not in White Plains. We are on Munsee Lenape land. They did not decide that it was going to be called White Plains. We took it from them, or not we. You know, you. <laughs> the abject violence of the Europeans responsible for this behavior is often diluted by their classification as mere settlers or founders, as well as by the myth perpetuated through centuries of education that the land was either unused or, if the indigenous warrant a mention at all, owed to those who stole it from them. Indeed, one of the most powerful tricks pulled by the system of whiteness and its supporters has been its ability to turn the reality of settler colonialism into a series of heroic folk tales. Now, Colonialism is not an American adventure, okay? We didn't come up with this. We just added some wrinkles to a system that already existed. Uh, one of the reasons that I do think that this book's argument expands beyond the United States is the fact that colonialism isn't something that belongs to us. We just added to it, okay? And I don't know, if, who knows what this statue is? You know who that is? It's King Leopold of Belgium. He used to cut off people's hands in the Congo. Anyway, so... The people who stole this country, all right, may have added new wrinkles to the program, but they learned from their own ancestors and their need, their ceaseless need for expansion and exploitation. And as cruel as colonialism always has been, that very exploitation was not a result of some haphazard sadism for its own sake, but was part of a system that requires an underclass from which labor can be extracted for profit. All right, it has been somewhat, it's become somewhat fashionable for people to criticize capitalism and for good reason, I'm not gonna defend it here, but I do wanna to add to the discussion because especially the white leftists I know wanna talk about the class part and they wanna forget about the race part. I'm saying you gotta talk about both at the same time. All right, most of the most celebrated opposition to capitalism has come from thinkers who premise their well-reasoned theorization on the harm done to the white proletariat or commoners. Though racism has always been central to the capitalist system of exploitation and we should not make the mistake of separating the two, which is why I tend to call it racial capitalism. All right, the development, this is a quote from Cedric Robinson, the development organization and expansion of capitalist society pursued essentially racial directions, so too did social ideology. Okay, I'm not saying Marx and Engels were wrong. I'm saying that their revolution was insufficient in scope, which is also a quote from Robinson. Indeed, capitalism, settler colonialism, and whiteness are deeply interwoven systems accounting not just for the people, places, and products that can be turned into profit, but also the justification for precisely who those exploited people should and shouldn't be. Let's talk about language ideologies and what that has to do with that. So these language ideologies, as I'm sure that you know, descend from broadly shared societal values about languages and languagers and the people using them and what they do with it, all right? These ideologies govern language policy and planning with the ostensibly unbiased goals of pragmatism and economic development. In the United States, for example, though there is still no official language, right, there has long been an effort to tie American identity to English. This is a quote from Recento. A principal means of achieving Americanization was through massive education programs that sought to teach American values, and they do this in the UK too, in Canada, ways of thinking, ways of living, especially the national language of English. Additionally, language ideologies create the parameters of a supposed standard language, which is then viewed more highly than other languages against which people are compared. Persons speaking other stigmatized or non-standard non varieties tend to be viewed as having deficiencies in intelligence, morality, and or character, and are often less successful in achieving upward social mobility, which generally requires proficiency in the standard national language. We can begin to see here how, and there's a lot of words in there, I'm sorry, but it's in the book, so. Uh, when placed alongside the hierarchies imposed by whiteness and settler colonialism, capitalism, and anti-blackness, 
Language ideologies are a powerful tool in the arsenal of stigmatization necessary to create and maintain an underclass that is categorized as not belonging to the national identity of the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, or other such countries where English is flourished. And I'm sorry that I have a habit of very, very long sentences. Because that's all one sentence. All right. So one more thing I should mention. You might have noticed a couple of times that when it said disability, there's a slash in it. What's that for? Why is it? I don't use it when I'm just saying it in general, whatever. It's in my academic work. I do it that way because the definition of disability has grown and shifted over the past several decades, but the way I'm using and spelling the term denotes the fact that the concept thereof has been created like many of the categories I've already mentioned by those with an incentive to exclude and a need to categorize those they consider less useful or productive, all right? Read the book, Disability and Capitalism, if you want to hear more about this. We didn't have a concept of this. You know, there's always been people who couldn't see or couldn't walk or whatever, right? Or things that we would understand as disability now, like ADHD or whatever, which I have. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily a problem until they couldn't be productive after the Industrial Revolution. Uh, in other words, I would say that the slash represents a direct acknowledgement of the harm wrought by both whiteness and ability supremacy, which, yes, is a real thing. But like blackness, it is a vibrant identity around which solidarity can and must be built. In other words, I write disability as such as a reminder that if... Yep, all right, I'm in the right place. Uh... If the world were designed in a way that accommodated everyone's maze of moving, feeling, and thinking, then those who have been rendered disabled would not be given lesser status. All right, this also ties my work to what I call, no, to what is called the social model of disability, which distinguishes between the impairment, which is whatever issue somebody has, like saying visually impaired or something, and the disability being the social oppression that results from being placed into the category. All right, reasonable people can disagree about this stylistic choice. That's why I made the decision in my scholarship. So, one more set of terms here. You've probably heard me mention these already. Okay, the reason I use these terms instead of minority or instead of race usually, like I'll mention the word race to contrast it with racism or racialization, but uh, is to show that it's always a process, right? Very few of these things are static concepts. Very few of these things are boxes that don't change, okay? Uh, minoritized is a better way to describe people in, for example, Detroit, Michigan, which is something like 80% black, but for however many decades, they haven't exactly had the power there, so they're still minoritized, even if they're not a numerical minority. You can say the same thing in South Africa, right? Obviously, the president's black now, but for however many centuries, there sure weren't very many white people in South Africa, but they sure did have all that power. So think about minoritized. You'll still see, because people are very slow on these things, all the government grants will say women and minority-owned business, right? Well, they need to come to this century with that. Racialized is the same thing. There's entire books on this, but basically showing that way I'm racialized here is not the same way I'm racialized in the Dominican Republic, not the same way I'm racialized in South Africa, or whatever, right? I classify myself as black, but if I go to other places, people see me differently. So we show that it's context-dependent. All right. And then there are people who, for example, we would racialize as white, but in other places they're considered other. If you're from Eastern Europe, for example, right here, we're probably going to see you as white. But if you go to France, you go to the UK, right, it's going to be a little bit different. And I use unstandardized not only because I have a podcast called Unstandardized English, so there's a little bit of branding there, but also to show that there's more power in saying unstandardized is a choice than non-standard, which is a deficit, uh, deficit view. Finally, this is, it's kind of hard to see, but that's okay. There's only one picture in the whole book. This is the way I'm organizing this. Now, do you want to, you can move the colonialism over here and the capitalism there and the whiteness there. I don't care. I'll just, as long as those three are on the top, okay? 
It's not like one made, led to the other and the other led to the other. The order does not matter that much. It's just showing that those three are at the top and that they together, and particularly with whiteness at the head, just because that's where my research focuses, but that doesn't mean that it, you couldn't put capitalism on the top, right? Is that they use the language ideologies, right? The things we believe about language and things we put forth in our language, which are then transmitted through language teaching to classify people into two groups. There's the order, which isn't really defined all that well, so much as defined by what it isn't, right? And then there's disorder, which includes blackness, which includes disability, which includes unstandardized English. You could add a whole bunch of other things to here. You could include queerness, you could include um, minoritized religions, right? You could include, you know, but my scholarship, because of my background and where I feel that I have the expertise to speak, is on these three. But again, what's on here is just everything that's bad. <laughs> in this, in the eyes of society, right? Could this be up? Don't be some people like, well, you know, you have to use the. I don't really care. You want to use the image? Use the image. Just credit me for it. But the fact is, like, you could change the way it is. This is like smart art on Microsoft Word, right? I'm not like an artist here. Okay, I'm just trying to show you that the most important thing is that they use language ideologies as a means of stigmatization. Okay, as a means of hierarchization, which is the hardest word to say. All right. In short. Whiteness requires people to be categorized as either ordered or disordered so that it can function effectively and support its aims of colonial domi colonialist dominance and capitalism. Accordingly, whiteness uses language ideologies and language teaching to classify blackness, disability, and unstandardized English as representations of pathology and disorder, and is thus able to justify its exploitation and oppression of members of these groups. Speaking of pathology, then, I should pause here so you like... What's, why does it keep saying pathology, right? And it is in the title, so I should probably define it, to make clear that I'm referring to the social process of categorizing individuals and groups as inferior and in need of treatment, okay? A phenomenon upon which more powerful groups depend for their continued supremacy, which is kind of what the book is about, all right? People like Kirk Carlson are haphazardly describing people who are in these groups as having no stake in society. And the point of this and all the work I do, not just this book, but right now it's the book because it just came out, uh, will detail the ways that whiteness construct these groups as representatives of disorder, fully deserving of their treatment at the hands of the powerful. Part one of the book, like the whole part one, is explaining that. That was the introduction to it, but then each chapter is like, there's one on whiteness, and then there's one on blackness, and then it goes to disability, and then it goes to language, and it goes back around to race, and it's that sort of thing. So the whole part one of the book is like explaining this. All right, the second part of the book, I take the seven criteria from antisocial personality disorder, and I map each one onto an aspect of the language education field and show how the centering of whiteness exemplifies this criterion of antisocial personality disorder to therefore the entire thing being called antisocial language teaching. And in the third part, because I did just write a whole dissertation, uh, I include some of my research and my interviews there from, I used to teach a class to white teachers who would then go back to their schools and try to change the policies and the, proce the processes in their schools. And I was like, what did they do? Was it successful, et cetera? And then I finally offer recommendations about what people should do. And I know I'm not gonna tell you until you actually read the book. So <laughs> that's basically how things are, all right? So let's have a discussion about all of that. First, questions for you. Ask yourself these questions now. Don't not turn pair solo, you by yourself, all right? 
In what ways have you seen language teaching sort students and students' work into order and disorder? When have you noticed that people who are seen as linguistically deficient are treated as if they lack intelligence? What markers of colonialism persist in the current ELT field? Don't think too hard. You only have five minutes. Just write your first thought down about each one, and then we're going to come together and talk about it. I'm going to put it back up. Don't worry. <laughs> 